Well, hello and welcome to the JLA cast. Um, my name's John. And I'm PJ. And um, yeah, um, we were just chatting off air. It's, it's obviously going to be a little bit of a different episode today um, uh, because we're, we're, we're recording this um, within 24 hours of the, um, the sad news of George Perez's passing uh, being announced. Um, yeah. And uh, P- PJ uh, rightfully pointed out that this would be a wonderful opportunity to just have like a, a little conversation about obviously his life, his work, his, his legacy. Yeah, it's, it's obviously our, our podcast at the moment focuses on the Grant Morrison Howard Porter run on JLA, but we've actually found you can't really talk about that book without also referencing Avengers, the, the same mm. Avengers book that was going on at the same time, which was Avengers Volume 3 by Kurt Busiek and George Perez. So he's someone who comes up a lot on the podcast, and it felt like we should really mark that. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, we, we kind of joke about it, but for a podcast about the JLA, it could be, we almost talk more about the, the Avengers. <laughs> because, yeah, as, as you rightly point out, like, these were the two big series of of the time. You know, yeah. they they were kind of equals and opposites in a way. Yeah, exactly. And certainly from for my part, JLA, I think, was the first DC book I really got into in that way. Mm. But I'd already been... I came to American comics quite late, to be honest. It was like 1996. I was already 14. And it was off the back of the X-Men cartoon and picking up an issue of X-Men. But because of that, I was a Marvel fan for a couple of years before I was a DC fan. Mm. And I think I would say that if I had to pick... I love DC, I love their characters, but I uh, I do go more into the Marvel camp and more into the Avengers camp, generally speaking, than JLA. Mm, I think that's fair. It it's um I, I I find increasingly now with obviously the success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I don't want to be that guy who's like, oh no, but actually I was there <laughs> in the yeah. early days. But to some extent, it was like that because it's like I I was a big fan of um. Uh, Iron Man, uh, you know, the Avengers. I, I mean, obviously, starting out with the cartoons, we've said it many times on this show, it was a lot harder to access DC content in the UK, with the obvious exception of, like, Batman the Animated Series and the yeah. Superman Animated Series. But, yeah, for me, through my teenage years, it was um, it was uh, Fantastic Four, Hulk, Iron Man, through the UK Panini reprints. Yep. And and then into kind of like my great love, which was the Avengers, the Busick and Perez run, um, and yeah, and, and and this is where you go like, well, actually, I liked the Avengers before they were cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I would say that it was around the time of that the launch of Volume Three was when I first discovered an American comic shop near where I lived at the time, near-ish. I had to get a train to get to it, but. Mm. Um, Avengers was one of the first series I was picking up regularly in terms of American floppies before they started reprinting it on in the UK editions. And it was one of the comics that got me into collecting comics. And I would say it's still today, and I suspect forevermore, is my favourite era of the Avengers. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Um, you can see why it had to end 
in a way. Mm. You know, it's um, nothing lasts forever and markets change, audiences change. By the time New Avengers came around, obviously the series was in need of a a bit of a reboot, but can't overstate just how important that era of the Avengers was. To the point where, you know, you think like also, we're coming off the 90s. Yeah. You know, not a great time for the Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. Clearly, we wouldn't be doing this podcast if we didn't love the 90s. But like, you know, when you've got, what was it? Um, Black uh, Black Knight, uh, Giant Man, Wasp, but she's like uh, a, a bio wasp mutant kind of thing. Everyone's wearing jackets. It, it's not, a, not an amazing time. In terms of a lineup, here's the thing though: that this is how it sticks in the memory. That wasp look, her changing into that weird mutated creature form, that came in in issue. I want to say it was in the three nineties, so it was only around for six or seven issues before onslaught happens, and then she goes back to being a human. But because it was that bad, <laughs> oh, that's one of the real symptoms everyone remembers of nineties comics. Hmm. But you you make a really good point about. You know, you're saying like that's maybe like your favorite run on the Avengers. You know, it it makes such an impact. You could almost say it was one of the definitive eras of the Avengers as well. Like, you know, I I don't know what am I trying to say. It's like we obviously we talk about the Silver Age, you know, and then maybe there's a school of thought that says it was a steady decline um, with a few peaks towards the nineties. But when Busick and Perez came along again, it was kind of a similar treatment to what. Morrison was trying to achieve with JLA. It's bringing back the heavy hitters. It's big, classic costumes, like classic heroes. Yeah. Um, it seemed very iconic. Yeah. Yeah, I would argue there are only really three periods in the Avengers prior to that that could maybe match it. And obviously that's Stan and Jack at the beginning. And then I think you've got to move up into like the... Roy Thomas era, Kree Skrull War in the early hundreds, up to about one fifty, which includes some George Perez work in the Korvac, uh, the Korvac saga. Oh yes, oh god, yes, oh wow, I forgot and, about the Korvac. Yeah, and then it's really, I'd say, the eighties and Roger Stern's run on the book, and then it, yeah, it's just a fast decline there until Volume Three. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's it's. I, I I have to imagine that a lot of people listening to this are oldies like us who who kind of have a bit of this historical context. But, you know, it'd be hard to explain to somebody, I think, below the age of 20 nowadays, that, like, yeah, the Avengers were not mainstream characters or in the general public. I mean, aside from a couple, like Captain America, maybe. But, like, they just weren't on the same level as the Justice League. And I think people, you know, people who were into comics appreciated and liked the Avengers. But, you know, Thor wasn't really a household name. Iron Man wasn't really a household name. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, you know, when, in 1997, when Morrison's like, okay, we need the JLA to be this pantheon of the Magnificent Seven, the world kind of sits up and goes, oh, I get what you're doing. But when Busick and Perez did that over the, the Avengers... Everyone who cared was like, well, this is a damn good comic. Yeah. But that's not going to make headlines in a way. 
Well, no. At that point, arguably, the only characters who really had reached outside of comics for Marvel were the X-Men, Spider-Man and the Hulk. And none of them were in the Avengers at that point. So to some extent, uh, while I'm not, while I've got on record as not being the biggest fan of some of the stuff Bendis did later, you can see the logic where they were like, okay, the the Avengers should be like the JLA. It should Mm. have all our heavy hitters. Well, not heavy hitters, but all our big names. So let's get Spider-Man on. Let's get Wolverine on. That sort of thing. Yeah. And I, you know, I enjoyed some of those stories with Spider-Man and Wolverine as Avengers. Um, but yeah, back in the nineties, obviously this is pre MCU as well. The world at large wasn't really overly familiar with Iron Man and Captain America, so yeah. But I think that gave, gave Busick and Perez some freedom with the book that they maybe wouldn't have had otherwise. Allowed them to do stuff with like Wonder Man, bring in characters like Triathlon and Silver Claw, their own creations as well, and things like that. Oh my God! I mean, I still hold such a candle for Wonder Man. And it's entirely because of that series. And, like, (laughs) Wonder Man has gone through more costumes than I think most people have had hot meals in their life. Um, But the choice of making him a purely ionic being Mm. for the course of this series, and also just the way he looked on the page, like... And this is where, of course, we we do start kind of kissing ass a bit here. But it's like, I don't think many artists could have drawn him the way George Perez did. Like, he looked incredible on the page. I think that's why I kind of just fell in love with him as a character. I would say there's a number of characters I'm going to say this about. But Wonder Man, Perez is the definitive version in my head. I think Mm. of Wonder Man, I think of the Perez version. And you're right. I think if you look at when Wonder Man would guest star in other books in the era or after Perez left Avengers because he left before Busick did I think it was about issue 34 was Perez's last one and Busick stayed on till like the mid 50s or something Mm. and no one could quite get Wonder Man in the same way Perez did don't get me wrong there were people who I I sort of liked it I think uh, Mark Bagley on the Thunderbolts when Wonder Man appeared in that. That was he looked pretty good. I liked how Alan Davis drew him in Avengers after Perez left, but no one got him in the way Perez did. And yeah, it is a superb, iconic look. And it is one of those things that only that artist can can do on that level. I always remember somebody making a good point that the credit to Perez's work on Avengers was that you had Outside of their costumes, you had three blonde, muscular guys running around. You had Thor, you had Cap, and you had Hank Pym. And he somehow gave them all a completely unique face. Yes, and Hawkeye as well at the beginning. Oh, God, sorry, Hawkeye. Yeah, a fourth one. Yeah, I forgot yeah. And yeah, out of costume, you knew exactly which one was which. He could. I really like the way yeah he could draw different faces, but I also love the way Perez drew eyes. There's a sequence in Avengers, I I think it's towards the end when the Avengers and the Thunderbolts have teamed up against Count Nefaria, where there's a close there's just like a sequence of close ups on all of their eyes. And it's one of the images that stays with me because Perez just draws the hell out of it. It's just such a superb image. And but you know exactly whose eyes you're looking at each time as well. It's God, ridiculous. Yeah. I cannot think of many other artists who could do that. No, you're right. Like that 
that in itself, just I, I'm remembering it now. And actually, to my shame, all my all my Avengers books are not in the house at the moment. They're still at my parents' house. I'm going to need to go back and reclaim them because, yeah, I could I can remember that page now. And God, yeah, you think how I can't draw. <laughs> I tried when I was younger. And like, particularly when you're drawing a superhero, there's always a tendency to um, revert to everybody having one body type and one yes. face. And the only distinguishing features are their costume and the colours. And the fact that, yes, you're right, he could draw different eyes on different people. And you would just know, oh my God, you're right, PJ. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's It was superb. I love And is that... Um, okay, so let's let's look at it this way. Do you remember the first time you saw George Perez's art? I I was going to ask you the same question, and and I think the the I think the safe answer is it would have been in Avengers mm. because um, I uh, I got my first American comic, quote unquote, was um, Marvel Heroes. Reborn, I think, the Panini collection, mm. which was collecting, obviously, the Heroes Reborn event. Um, so I have, I honestly have no recollection of who was drawing those issues. It was midway through the Galactus storyline. And yeah, obviously, you can kind of picture what it looked like. It was very quasi Jim Lee esque. Yeah, yeah. And then that transitioned into the Heroes uh, Return event. Uh, which I think was Carlos P- Pacheco drawing. Yeah, Peter David wrote. It was a four-issue series, wasn't it? Yes. Where Spider-Man yeah. and the Hulk, uh, the the normal Marvel Hulk, ended up in the <laughs> Heroes Reborn universe, which is how they found out the heroes were alive, and then they had to bring them all back. And then, suddenly, you know, editorial note, hey, everyone, this is your editor here at Marvel Heroes Reborn. We're going to be transitioning into uh, Avengers... Uh, I don't know what it was called at the time, United or something? Avengers United, yeah, because they were like a football team. <laughs> and they were like, are you cool? You're right. Oh, God, you're right, yeah. <laughs> That's probably why they <laughs> called it that for the UK audience. Uh, and then it turned into the Avengers, and I was like, well, I've heard about these Avengers characters. They turned up during the Galactus event, and they all look weird and cool, and who's this Vision character? I'll stick around. And yeah, and it was right into the the Perez uh, Busick run. And I think I missed a couple of stories right at the start where they clash with the Squadron Supreme, mm. but which I never, I never got. But from that point on, it was just that was my. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it from that point on. So yeah, I think probably Avengers. But as a kid, I did have some kind of like um, big hardback, like a guide to the Marvel Universe sort of thing. Yeah. So it's entirely possible there was some art in there. What about you? Well, I, yeah, mine's a slightly it's 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 Avengers Volume Three, but it's a slightly weirder encounter with it because I was familiar-ish with the Avengers at that point because I'd read some of Onslaught. Um, I'd basic for some reason my local news agents would would get random issues of X Men and Uncanny X Men in, right, and I'd managed okay. to get most of the chapters of Onslaught. From, from that book so it's like an incomplete part of the crossover but it's a lot of the key beats but it means i'd met the avengers in that and i'd also played the mega drive side-scrolling beat-em-up game as well yes which i didn't know until you mentioned it like last last episode i didn't even know existed yeah so i was i was vaguely familiar with the avengers but i 
they weren't characters I was excited by or seeking out at that point. <clears throat> and then, obviously, I knew the Heroes Reborn thing was happening. And when then Heroes Reborn ended and they brought all the characters back for their Heroes Return for Volume 3, SFX Magazine in the UK ran a review of all four issue ones at the time. So Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Captain America and um, Avengers. Right, okay. And I remember they reprinted images from each book and there were two in particular that I looked at and went, that's really cool. I need to read this. One was an image from Captain America issue one that Rongani drew of Cap Death, uh, Captain America rugby tackling Lady Deathstrike. Oh, okay, uh, wow. But then the other one was a Perez image from Avengers issue one. And it was just that bit where... Cap, Iron Man, Giant Man, and the Wasp are sat like in, oh. in a, the living room of Avengers Mansion talking. Oh my god! And and um, a Giant Man has a massive cup cup of tea. Yes, yeah. He has an absolutely massive mug that Jarvis has brought in. And and there was just something about this image, the way Perez drew the characters, the way it had been coloured as well. I was like, I, I love this image. It's just it's just four people having a cup of tea, but I love it. I need to get this book. So that's when I went and sought out my, this comic shop that was nearby and started getting the Avengers. And um, yeah, Perez's art instantly had an impact on me when I first saw it. I remember it clearly, just from a review in a magazine. And yeah, obviously then I went and bought Avengers and fell in love. I think, um, oh, I can't, it wasn't Ultron on Unlimited because that came later, but the um, the Ultron storyline uh, I guess I'll oh, come to think of it, where where he invaded Sokovia. It was it was a different country in the comics. I think I want to say it was like Slovenia or Slovenia, uh, another of their fictional. Uh, this is what I was wondering because I I kind of assumed that I don't know I because obviously it's a fictional country, but I kind of assumed that that's where that's why they called it that in the movies because they were just referencing this unconnected Ultron like event. So but, they, they definitely used a lot of the Ultron storyline in that film, but I think Sokovia was a different from a different storyline sure. in in Marvel, uh, in Marvel comics. But I I can't for the life of me remember what that particular arc was called. But it was Ultron like Unlimited. Was it Ultron on Ultron on Unlimited? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because there was a later Ultron story which wasn't as good. Perez wasn't on it. Um, but no, you. But but I regardless. Yeah, Ultron, Un- Ultron Unlimited. Get your words out, John. <laughs> that felt like kind of like a culmination. Well, it, yeah. it was nowhere near the end of a series, but if that really felt like the mission statement for the book, where it's like we've been building, we've been building, monster of a week, you know, little two part of threat. Oh, something's coming. What is this? And then the big kind of blockbuster moment was Ultron invading this country with you know, every possible previous incarnation of his body and every, like, future incarnation as well. And I just remember going, like, oh, my God, this is the most intense thing I've ever seen on the page. Like, and that's when I started to appreciate, like, who is this maniac, George Perez, that he can draw, like, not just a 100 heroes, but also, like, a 1,000 robots in the background? Yeah, and he drew such a good Ultron. Again, definitive Ultron in my head is is the Perez Ultron. Oh my god, yeah. But and that, yeah. Oh my god, and that that gave us. I mean, obviously, credit to Busick as well for obviously the script, but the two of them working in harmony. That gave us these moments like Thor 
going, Ultron, we would have words with thee. Yes. You know, these kind of, these epic badass moments. It was it was incredible. It also, the, the covers for that, I think it was a four-parter, wasn't it? And the covers for it, the cover to issue 19, which is the first chapter, is literally just black, but then with Ultron's eyes and mouth lit up red. And it's terrifying. Mm. But it's it's... It's beautiful as well. And then obviously the rest of them are like Avengers doing fighty things. And then the final one is Ultron sort of triumphantly over them. But that really felt like something this run did was it felt like, to me, the natural end point of the Ultron storyline and Hank Pym as well. Because really, it fixed Pym. It made Pym come to terms with everything he'd done and find himself a hero again. And obviously, writers since then have basically ignored that and taken him back, which is a shame. But certainly that starts, I think, in in this Ultron storyline with Hank Pym basically facing Ultron himself at the end. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's stunning stuff. The images from that that issue of of Hank with I think he's like carrying some vibranium or something in his in his hands as he punches, goes to work on Ultron and just destroys yeah. him. This was uh, this was. Busick, kind of king of um, the uh, kind of um, miscellaneous comic fact, pointing out that vibranium had never been tested on adamantium. Yeah. I think like, the idea, because of course in the comics it works a little differently to in the movies, but it kind of dissolved metal, didn't it? Vibranium. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just Hank Pym picking up a wad of vibranium and just punching the living hell out of Ultron. Yeah. It was remarkable. Yeah. I I do feel like there was uh Perez must have been involved in at the very least the plotting of Avengers with with Busick. They would talk about the stories. I'm sure that they had because I know they were quite good friends as well. Mm. And I'm sure there was some because when Busick uh sorry Perez first came back to Marvel in the mid 90s it was to draw the Infinity Gauntlet miniseries, the uh, mm. the six part series, which where Thanos first gets the gauntlet and wipes out half the population. But Perez only ended up drawing the first three issues, uh, and then he sort of drew part of issue four before he had to leave the book. Okay. Now, part of that was because he was also doing the War of the Gods mini at DC at the same time, and he was contractually obligated to finish that series before he left DC. Yeah, sort of the end of his Wonder Woman run, his culmination there. But the other reason was he'd been writing as well. He was writing Wonder Woman at DC at that point, and then coming back to Marvel on Infinity Gauntlet and only being—I say only, obviously, you know what I mean—he's <laughs> anything yeah. but only, but <laughs> only being the artist on that book and having to work from full scripts from Jim Starlin. And he said, you know, Starlin scripts were fine, but the writer in me wanted to try and be more involved in it. And so he he sort of left the book, let Ron, Ron Lim draw the rest of issue four and then five and six, although he still inked it. But uh, I, it makes me think that on Avengers, he definitely had a say in what was happening. Was, was you know, Busick would do the script, but I, I feel like Perez was heavily involved in the plotting of things. Mm. No, I can imagine that as well, because, I mean, clearly, wow, I mean, it would be hard to find a more prolific creator. I mean, like, his body of work is kind of astonishing. And and as you're saying, like, to be 
both an artist and a writer. Well, and not just any artist as well, to be George Bloody Perez and to be a writer. Like, he probably understood the medium of comics better than most, to be honest. Yeah, as you say, it'd be, it'd be unlikely that he wouldn't have been involved uh, in, in kind of driving the story a bit with Avengers. Yeah. Come to think of it, I mean, like, it's... God, like, to have Busick and Perez, like, we almost, like, didn't know how lucky we were, really. Um, you know, it's funny, like, you know, Morrison over at DC, as we've discussed on the show, like, very different vibe, because obviously Morrison, I think by their own admission, kind of cultivated this kind of, like, enfant terrible kind of personality. You know, Morrison was the punk, the, the upsetter, you know. And, and based on those early wizard features... Uh, had not interacted with Porter at all in the early days of, of the creation of, of the series. I have to imagine it's very different over at Avengers. Yeah, well, I've actually got the... Uh, see, a few episodes ago, we looked at the Wizard JLA special editions from during Morrison's run. I've got the Avengers equivalent to that in my hands at the moment. And it's it was sort of printed just before the Ultron storyline after... Cause Busick and Perez obviously did up to issue 15 and then took a break for three issues to get ready for Ultron and Jerry Ordway came in and did a three-part story about Miss Marvel and the Wrecking Crew and oh. Archon. <laughs> it was weird. But there's an interview yeah. with them both and they're clearly being interviewed together. Like they're, they're, they're riffing on each other's answers and and yeah, and it's clear that they had a great relationship and worked really well together because they would just... just talk to each other about everything every <laughs> aspect of the book the um i was reading something um and again i apologize everyone my my surface level research is to go to wikipedia <laughs> but um of course it reminded me that perez was briefly involved in the new 52 yes yeah he did like a um was i think he not the... drawing superman he did some bit. Superman around that time. Um, he also, I think, in fifty two itself, they wouldn't they have like backup strips and things? Oh, sorry, mm. yeah, New, new Fifty Two, because in fifty two he did a Nightwing thing, but in New Fifty Two, I think he was involved in Superman, uh, one of the Superman books for a little while. Yeah. Well, this this comes from Wikipedia, but this is kind of insightful. Uh, in July twenty twelve, Perez explained his departure from Superman as a reaction to the level of editorial oversight he experienced. This included inconsistent reasons given for rewrites of his material, the inability of editors to explain to him basic aspects of the new 52 Superman status quo, such as whether his adoptive parents were still alive, and restrictions imposed by having to be consistent with Action Comics, which was set five years earlier, a situation complicated by action writer Grant Morrison not being forthcoming about their plans. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That does sound about right, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. given, given everything we've heard about the new 52. in, in the, Yeah, and I feel like Perez isn't someone you want to constrain. Hmm. He was someone who would always work best when given the freedom. And I think that's something Busick gave him. And also, I, one has to assume the editorial as well you know for somebody higher up at marvel to just go like you know what you guys busick and perez your old hands you're firing on all cylinders off you go kind of thing um and also i get 
you know, I can't really overstate how different an Avengers book would have looked even just between, say, 1995 and 1997. Yes. Like, well, here's the thing. I mean, for better or for worse, the 90s had a particular aesthetic, you know. They were, things were extreme. There's a reason Rob Leefield rose to power here, you know. They were extreme. They were gnarly. Everyone was snarling. So my question is, when Avengers goes from that and not being a very popular book to we've got Reborn, eh, well, you know, not that great. didn't work out. <laughs> the Return, and now Avengers Volume 3, right back to issue one. You've got Busick and Perez. Do you think it ever seemed old-fashioned to a certain audience? Or was it just like, we're glad we have trustworthy people back on the book? I don't know. It might be looked at as old-fashioned to a degree, but I think that was the late 90s reaction to what had happened in the rest of the 90s. Because one thing I will say about Volume 3 is it's a lot more colourful, and Perez's art is a lot more graceful. The characters are more fluid. They they move more naturally. It's not about being dynamic. It's about though he can be, of course, very dynamic with the art. But <laughs> it's more about character and actually making sure these characters are being true to themselves. And and yeah, I guess the colourful aspect of it might be something that people sort of go, "Oh, this isn't." You know, these aren't my grown-up gritty comics. Where's all the spikes and chains? <laughs> well, but yeah, it's one of the things about it that really appealed to me. Well, yeah, and I, I guess kind of like an innate understanding of anatomy as well. Like, his characters look heroic and obviously muscular, but they kind of look real, and they kind of stand like human beings rather than, say, you, you know... That pose, yeah. What we're talking, you, you know, like <laughs> what what comics looked like in the nineties. I think one of the big examples of that for me is uh, his Captain America, because I think his Cap, he's he builds him more like a gymnast. He's not mm. your big muscly guy. He's ju- he's a very fit man. Obviously strong, but also. He's flexible. He can he can move. There's a sequence in Avengers 25 when the Avengers are fighting the Exemplars to try and save ah, Juggernaut. I'm so glad you brought up the Exemplars that I think about that <laughs> on quite a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's a great issue. But basically, this was a weird time where comics would celebrate having a 25th issue, so they made it like a double-sized big event, issue 25. <laughs> Quicksilver turns up. And then as the Avengers are going to fight the Exemplars in their weird temple in the sky, Nova and Spider-Man just go, oh, hey, can I help too? And yeah, great. But there's a sequence where it's sort of the Exemplars are rallying and coming back at the Avengers. And it says that they're taking out the most agile members of the team because they're causing problems. And it's Spider-Man and Captain America are the ones they go for. Oh, that's nice. Cap has that sort of, not on the same level as Spidey, but that's the kind of way he... He fights in this version of the Avengers. He's agile. He'll move around. Well, yeah, I I think... Because obviously this is a period in which, uh, for a good while at least, Cap had lost his shield. Or it had been destroyed, I want to say. And, uh, of course, he was using the holographic shield emitter for a while. Yeah. 
uh, which of course he could reshape into different weaponry. It could be a scaff, it could be a whip, which I just loved when I was younger. I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. But of course, you got to see Cap move in completely different ways when he was using like different weaponry. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. I mean, God, like there are a few artists who could draw that. And, and I'm just thinking of some of the action panels now from the various Avengers comics. And I just really want to get my Avengers comics back now. <laughs> I I need to try and track down physical copies of them again. I've only got them on on I sold most of my comic collection a few years ago and I regret getting rid of those uh-huh. Avengers comics. I've got them on Comixology, but Comixology is almost unusable as an app these days. It's awful and trying to read them on there is just horrific. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, I've said it before, but they they've obviously ported Comicsology Submit doesn't exist anymore. They're kindly asking everyone who was on it to move over to Amazon Direct Publishing. And I just haven't, <laughs> just haven't gotten around to it. And I don't think I will at this point. But even the app itself, to download a comic is is figuring that out. It's like, what, how, what do I have to press here? And then once you've finished reading a comic to try and get back into your list of comics, I don't know how you how I've done it. It just, it makes no sense. The app is awful now. I might have to start subscribing to Marvel Unlimited instead. Yeah, maybe. This is how it begins, PJ. Even mm. Netflix is, uh, you know, it's, it's time has come. Yeah. <laughs> I've just opened, because the only, to my shame again, the only George Perez comics I have in the house at this moment in time are my, my issues of JLA Avengers. Mm-hmm. But I have just opened issue one to the double-page spread of the Avengers fighting Starro. Ah, uh, can we talk about how good a Starro George Perez has drawn because my god it's huge it's it's so powerful and it's all tentacly and I love I love that Perez drew you know it's it's very much the modern Morrison Starro with the little star conquerors that come out of it but it's old school Starro in look it's well and also okay Lex what would the script have said here double page spread Open on New York, the Avengers are fighting uh, mind-controlled hordes of Scaro who all have a starfish on their face. Some of their own have been transformed. You have to convey both the fight and you have to get Scaro into shot, who coincidentally is being attacked by Vision, Iron Man, Thor, and Jack of Hearts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, okay, how do how, how do you draw that? Okay, well, George Perez puts a camera on the ground, angles it straight up, has ground-level Avengers fighting above us, a zombie horde, buildings above them, and then looking even higher up, we have Starro right above us and our airborne heroes. It is the most insane perspective shot yeah. in the world. And this is just like, yeah, right at the start of issue one. It's incredible. I mean, we know JLA Avengers was a passion project for George that because obviously you had him starting the initial version of it in the 80s, which then came to nothing. And so he'd wanted to draw this book for a long, long time. I have to imagine that in terms of this sequence with Starro and also the preceding sequence where <laughs> the uh, the JLA fight, I cannot remember its name, that oh, big. oh, ter- is it Terminus? Terminus, Terminus, Terminus yeah. yeah. 
I have to imagine that was Busick saying to him. So we're going to open with each team fighting like a really big, powerful villain from the other universe. Which ones do you want to do, George? <laughs> I'd like, if I were an artist, which I am not, and of course, this is 2004? This happened? Uh, yeah, yeah. JLA yeah. Avengers was 04 or 05, I think. I'd be like, I want, I want Scarrow. I'd be like, I'd be like, you've got it. But then also I'd be like, oh crap, no, I don't want Scarrow because now I have to draw like hundreds of mind-controlled people. Um, but yeah, I mean, it'd have to be Scarrow, right? It's so, so good. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he draws the heck out of it. And then even the sequence when you have, because they defeat it by basically having the Scarlet Witch tap into her chaos magic and and feeding it back to Starro. Starro flying away from the Earth at speed. I don't know how Perez <laughs> makes a featureless giant starfish monster look terrified, but he does. <laughs> um, was was I? Remind me, PJ, because you you know all. Was was Busick also involved in the failed attempt to do JLA Avengers back in the? Eighties? No. no, no, no. That was uh, that was going to be um, Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas were due to write that. Wow! And it would have been Kang the Conqueror and the Lord of Time pitting the two teams against each other. That's not that's not the same Lord of Time who would go on to be from JLA it, Wildcats. The, yeah, that guy. The greatest, the greatest um, <laughs> hero crossover since JLA Avengers. Well, actually, no, it predated it. It predated it. <laughs> Yeah, and it would take a very contest of champions, sort of similar thing, but with smaller groups of teams. But you'd still get like the Batman Captain America fight. But obviously, the teams were very different at the time as well, and had different costumes. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned like you know, you know, contest of contest of champions and lots of individual teams of heroes. But like that kind of became a almost like a trademark of of Perez. Really, this you know these massive casks of characters and I, I wonder how much of it was a self-fulfilling prophecy it's like he did it once and then every writer he collaborated with after that was like oh well if you've got Perez you've got to have a hundred characters in an epic battle um clearly culminating in JLA Avengers which I think has to have broken some record for the number of named characters hmm. in one picture I mean I would say that probably dates back to Crisis on Infinite Earths oh you're right which you're right is for me probably still the best like crossover DC have done. They've never managed to better that. And the number of characters Perez had to draw in that 12-issue series. And again, I've got that. I pulled as many of my Perez books as I could off the shelf at the moment. So I've got my collected edition of that next to me that came out in the early 2000s, which, again, just has hundreds of characters on the cover. And it's a Perez drawing, but it's then been uh, painted over by Alex Ross, Oh, yes, of course, the classic one. The classic yeah, one. and it is stunning. It it makes me think as well, between Crisis on Infinite Earths, JLA Avengers, and then obviously Perez did multiple runs on Avengers. He he did another crossover at DC, War of the Gods. Obviously he had other characters guest star in Wonder Woman at various times. I wouldn't be surprised if Perez was the artist who had officially, for the for Marvel and DC, drawn the most number of characters in actual books they've sold. Well, surely. 
I mean, surely, right? I mean, even just, you know, even if you factor in just, oh, I don't know, two of his big ensemble pictures. I mean, the cover to JLA Avengers 3 has every Avenger and every Leaguer ever yeah. at the time. Like, who who else could claim to have done something like that? And, of course, Crisis, he's got D- loads of DC characters who weren't in the... Uh, in the the JLA he'd done New Teen Titans before that as well um yeah it's well, well that's something that we probably should talk about Teen Titans and I, I feel PJ you 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 might have to be our guide here but before perhaps before we touch on that I just want to give absolute credit to the fact that in for example the cover to JLA Avengers 3 which of course was pure Perez you know Unless maybe Busick helped a bit compiling a list of every I, event. And it Liga. wouldn't surprise me if Busick had some input in terms of that, yeah. Okay, so one, massive task of you have to draw every Avenger and every Liga. But two, hi, I'm George Perez, and I'm going to thematically group the characters so that we have, for example, all the Speedsters at the bottom. We have all the beastly and animal-powered heroes in one group, or have all the giant and size-changing people. Like, oh, and let's put all the sidekicks in one area, all the magical heroes in one... Like, Here's that's a whole above- group of archers. <laughs> yeah! That's above and beyond, surely? There are 208 characters on that cover. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. And characters who almost had no business being there, like, We've already discussed how Retro's on the cover. And Retro was never really an official leaguer. He just sort of sort of got to join them pre for a day because he won a competition. He's not an actual superhero. I think, I can't actually find her at the moment, but I'm pretty I... sure Moira Brandon is on there. And she's an old lady who was given official Avengers status after she died who only appeared in one issue. I think it was West Coast Avengers 100. And... Rick Jones is there for crying out loud. Um, Snap a car. Um, there's even Hank Pym. I mean, Hank Pym appears like five times on the cover, but like there's Hank Pym there from the time where he was just running around without powers helping the team. Doesn't Hank Pym appear like as multiple times as like Giant Man, Ant Man, Yellow Jacket, Goliath. Goliath? And I think you've got Hawkeye's in there as Goliath as well. There's multiple yes. Iron Mans flying around. You've got Flatman, and you've also got Fantastic, uh, Miss Fantastic, uh, two Ant Men. You got you got Scott Lang as well. Yeah, I'm actually right this second. I know Retro's here. I'm just trying to find him on the cover. It's like where's Wally? Uh, Retro is just above Batman with the Thing and Vance Astro. Oh, that's why I can't see him. It's because they they've um, slapped the Avengers United logo oh. over over his head. That will do it. <laughs> I'm I'm determined to find Moira Brandon now. Oh, there she is! I found her. <laughs> it is. It's one of the most ridiculous covers of all time, but I love it so much because of it. And I'm very glad that uh, now that I've got the Hero Initiative version, I've got an actual guide to it and the list of all the characters. <laughs> no, they've reprinted it, numbering every character, and then on the next two pages is is each number corresponds to a character. And I'm glad they did that. But I also feel so sorry for whoever on the admin team had to do that. Because, <laughs> you know, hey, George, 
George Perez and and uh, and uh, and Busick, they can hold that kind of stuff in their skull. Like us mere mortals, that's like weeks of work. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, Maxwell Lord's there. Ah, uh, yeah, yes, I I spotted him, and I, and I was like, oh my God, is that Captain Comet? <laughs> Jeez, Louise. But uh, PJ, like you've you're, I, I'm completely ignorant in this regard. But you you you've got a history with Teen Titans. I have read the Marvel Wolfman George Perez Teen Titans. Now I will admit, it's been a while. I read it. Um, in the late 90s, my local library in the, for a couple of years had a really good graphic novel section. And they had in there, I can't remember what they called them. They were like the DC archives or something. You know, like the, the Marvel Masterworks hardcovers. Oh, yeah. The DC equivalent of that. And they had all of New Teen Titans in there. So I got them out and, and read them, devoured them. And obviously New Teen Titans introduced Raven, Starfire, Cyborg, they were Wolfman Perez creations. It introduced the Monitor, started setting up Crisis on Infinite Earths. I'm pretty sure that's where you also find Deathstroke the Terminator or Slade Wilson. He was introduced mm. in that. And obviously, while the Teen Titans had debuted many years before with the original lineup of sidekicks, it was new Teen Titans that made the Teen Titans into essentially what they still are today. It's that that it, the book always refers back to, rather than any previous era before that. Well, it, it's it's funny because, like you know, even not having read it, but having these kind of a few books around the house, like um, the DC Encyclopedia, it's amazing that so much of that references that era of of Titans. You know, um, characters I know perhaps more by look the name if that makes sense wasn't argent around that time as well or i think I argent dreaming? was one of the new teen titans yeah oh yeah, not not the in the original i say original lineup from issue one of that book but yeah and also that oh, this is bad pj the dude who couldn't talk jericho jericho that's it jericho yeah because i mean that's a very I can't picture that character being drawn by anyone other than George Perez. Like that. You yeah. just look at him and go, well, that's a George Perez character. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it and it's obviously that's what the uh, the team that the Teen Titans cartoon and then Teen Titans Go was based on as well. Um it's also when the era when Dick Grayson became Nightwing was mm. in Teen Titans rather than in in any other book. He is that when he was running around wearing that kind of blue, black, and gold costume for a yes. bit. Yes, yeah, that was the yeah. first Nightwing costume. And of course, I, other things I'd kind of like forgotten about, just completely forgotten about. But um, the Hulk, Future Imperfect. Yes, yeah, that is uh, <laughs> that's a weird book. That's uh, another one I've got next to me at the moment, actually, because I've got the. Um, Marvel uh, premiere classic reprint of The End, which also oh. includes Future Imperfect in it. Uh, which I think was a Marvel... I think they did that... Was it prestige format? Future Imperfect? It was a two-part series. Yeah. Um, written by Peter David, and it was when the Hulk was meant to be the Hulk with Banner's mind, although it was Professor Hulk, who's actually something a little different these days. <laughs> but... Yeah, it's a great story where you also introduce the maestro, who's the evil future version of the Hulk. 
And I, I mean, I was um, uh, a really big fan of the um, latter days of Peter David's run on the Hulk, because mm. those again were collected in these Panini uh, editions, um, and it, the continuity was really weird because they were it, it, they were simultaneously publishing content that was post Heroes Return and the Hulk storyline, which I think was originally pre. It, it was it was like off by like a year or so. Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, because um, by the time they started, when they they start, it was when they got to Heroes Return that it went. It started as a smaller book, and they'd only reprint two issues a month, whereas a normal Marvel collector's edition at that side was three. Yeah, so they'd only do Fantastic Four and Iron Man, and then when Heroes Return happened, they did Volume Three of Iron Man and Fantastic Four together. But then they brought in the Hulk and started it about halfway through the Heroes Reborn run because the first one they reprinted was that fight he has with Wolverine in the Savage Land after oh Onslaught, God. but before the Heroes have come back. So yeah, they were out of step for a while. That was... I, I, again, sorry, I know we should be talking about George Perez, but that was a fun run. Yeah. When it was like... Uh, God, it was um, one of the Kuberts, wasn't it? It was like Peter David and... Adam Kubert. Adam Kubert and... Um, my God, there was some fun stuff there. And, and, and stories that referenced the maestro. So at the time, I'd never... You know, I didn't know anything about... I'd never read Future Imperfect. But, you know, it's like, oh, here's a storyline where the spirit of the maestro escapes from hell. Yeah. And um, briefly controls the destroyer? Yeah, yeah. It's a weird time. But yeah, that was fun. <laughs> but there's there's this amazing double-page spread in issue one of Future Imperfect where it's in a future where the Hulk has become the maestro and has taken over the world and killed all the other heroes. So... Janice Jones, the daughter of Rick Jones, travels back in time to bring the present day Hulk, the only being that has the strength to fight the Maestro, to the future. And he comes and meets Rick Jones, who's still alive and sort of living in a lair where he's got all the remnants of the deceased heroes. And it's a page where there's. It's crazy. You've got. Spider-Man's mask and Thor's hammer in cases. Captain America's shield and mask on a wall. US agent's broken shield and mask. There's a sentinel head. There's the helmets of like Magneto, the Wizard, Nova, Ant-Man, <laughs> Crimson Dynamo. Yeah, it's a crazy page full of... And again, I don't think Peter David had put a lot of this in the script. I think he was just like, put some trophies in there. This tattered remains of Spidey's black costume. Wolverine's adamantium skeleton. That would have been in the script because uh, it comes up later on. Rick Jones is is in Professor X's hover chair. You know, it's, it's yeah. a crazy, crazy two-page spread, but it's just stunning stuff. Wow. Yeah, sorry, I was just... I'm just you know, picturing it in my head. I know that doesn't make great audio, everyone, but sorry, I was just <laughs> imagining it. Yeah, I, I would say Future Imperfect, I don't think is Peter David's best writing. Bits of it don't hold up that well today, but it's worth checking out if you haven't read it for Perez's art. I was, I was actually, um, I, I, I did meet him briefly um, way back at the first ever show I exhibited at, uh, the London Super Comic Con 2012. Oh, really? Yeah, it was it was a really weird show because um, for their for the organisers, uh, the the show I think stopped in like 2015. It's no longer a going concern. Yeah, but um, but for that very first one, they've got Scan Lee over, and I think it was like his first UK appearance in a good many years. But then um, there was like nothing 
well, nothing else. You know, it was like, uh, oh, here's Stan Lee and the signing queue, which is like half the hall. And then here's like 20 tables. And I, you know, I was at one of them. So I actually did really well out of it. It was a hell of a first show. <laughs> but um, George Perez was there as, I, you know, and I was like, oh, good God, it's George Perez. And even at that point in my life in 2012, I was like, hey, George, like, thank you. Just <laughs> like, just went over and just said hello. And he was really, he was really nice about it. Because he was he was being swamped, like people were. Yeah, I mean, people turn up when George Perez is there. Yeah, yeah. I never managed to get to a show he was at. I wish I could have met him, um, but because yeah, his art is such a huge part. I think of of my life from my teenage years onwards. His his are the books I keep going back to. Yeah, it does. It does feel. It hasn't really sunk in yet, but no, it does really feel like the end of an era to some extent, and that's not all on him. It's it's perhaps unfair to put that much pressure on 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 one human being, but like you know, times times will change, and you know, people will move on, and new creators will come in, and it it, it is kind of just a reminder that like you know these figures from this big definitive era of comics, you know, um, they're not always going to, they're not always going to be with us, you know, and you only get one go around. So like, it's, it's not completely cyclical. It's like, you know, comics started in like the thirties, maybe, you know, we've only had one golden age. We've only had one silver age. You know, we had the bronze age, the dark age, the revival, and now everything is, this is me getting very wanky about it, but everything's kind of like postmodern now. Like everything exists in the shadow of these people who went before. So like, yeah, just the, the impact that George Perez had on mainstream comics, like it's, it casts a big shadow, you know? And I think part of that is because he managed to sort of stride over several different eras. You look at his early work on, on Avengers, that I think his first issue is is like issue one hundred and forty four, um, which would have been in the seventies, I think. And yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm trying to look it up now. Actually, yeah, yeah, one four one, yeah, one four one. There we go. And then he's fairly consistently on the book, not every issue, but up until like issue two hundred and two, he's he's he does a good chunk of Avengers in that period. So. Five years span, apparently, from 75 to 80, um, including the infamous issue 200, which <laughs> is, you know, we don't like to talk about issue 200 of Avengers. does have stunning art, though. Um, yeah. But yeah. I, I think it's quite interesting. If you pull up issue 141 of Avengers and then go to issue 34 of Avengers Volume 3, you can still sort of see that it's the same artist, even though he's obviously developed a lot in that 23 24 year period mm -hmm. it is it is the same artist and you can tell that well it's his um yeah it's just like his faces mm. you know i think that's kind of yeah it's for level of care i think which of course was his undoing at times like it you know um the attention to detail kind of broke him on uh JLA Avengers. Well, yeah, that that two hundred and eight character cover, he, he 
it, it damaged his, his wrists, and that's why issue four was delayed, and that's why issue four, iconic an image of Superman as it is, only has Superman on the cover. <laughs> and but it's also it's, but you know, the publishers waited. Mm. They didn't go. Oh, George George is is injured. Let's get a ringer in. You know, because I don't think anyone else could have finished that series. I, I want to say it was a good four months between... Because one, two, and three had come out on consecutive months as planned. And I, but I want to say it was a good maybe three or four months in between issue three and four. Mm. Yeah, and of course, I mean, we've talked about it um, on air in the past, but um, in the UK at least, they, they switched to, you know, printing it kind of simultaneously with America. And um, when that delay happened... Uh, for the UK had teams had to scramble to find someone to fill it. So I, I think they went through pretty much the entire Cree Scroll War, I want to say. I think they started by doing like issues 197 to 200, because that was George Perez. So it was just say, hey, here's some early Perez stuff. And then, yeah, they, as you say, they, they sort of did the entirety of the Cree Scroll War over about three issues then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and then they were like, oh, yeah. So, yeah, because wait, I'm holding, I've got the collected editions in my hands now and yeah so part three came out in march 2004 in the uk at least but it wasn't until june that they resumed with part four so yeah what's that like april may yeah two two months three months maybe okay i want to say (laughs) yeah it it, it did actually i have to say yeah but yeah i mean I think we should also talk a bit more about about Crisis on Infinite Earths and what came after that. Well, because you can talk about my secret shame, PJ, in that I've never read Crisis on Infinite Earths. Crisis is worth picking up. It's a fantastic book. Uh, obviously, I think the thing people mostly remember about Crisis is, in terms of the art, that one cover where of Superman screaming in anguish as he cradles the dead body of Supergirl in his arms. Uh, Now, it's crazy to me that the Flash dies, Barry Allen dies in Crisis on Infinite Earths, but it's the image of Superman holding Supergirl (coughs) that most people remember. Mm. (laughs) Because Supergirl, I don't think, was as popular as she had been at that point. DC wanted to kill her off so that Superman was again the only Kryptonian. But you know, Flash was a big deal. Him dying was a big deal. But this cover is such an iconic image. Superman just stood there. He's, he's holding her. She's got her costumes torn. There's there's blood on her. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a striking image. But it is absolutely stunning. And you can feel the anguish on Superman's face as well. Well, it's so striking because if you Google George Perez as an image search, you don't have to scroll long before you find the man himself recreating that cover at a convention where he's holding, he's screaming and holding a woman dressed as Supergirl. Oh, yeah. With a, I think he, he, I feel like he did that more than once with Supergirl cosplayers. <laughs> but that's saying something, isn't it? If you can be so famous, not just as an artist, but for one particular image, that yeah. people are like, hey, could could we recreate this, please? Yeah. But then, of course, throughout Crisis as well, see, he draws multiple versions of characters. You have Golden Age and Modern Age Superman sharing a panel, and you can instantly tell the difference because 
Golden Age Superman, he has a shorter cape, he has greyer hair, his S is slightly different. But that's just stylistic choice from, from Perez, I think, that just works really well, it, well. Well, I guess kind of kind of what we were touching on with Avengers, but you know, the idea that he can draw superheroes who, you know, for lack of a better phrase, are like often quite similar, you know, muscle bound people with, you know, dark hair or blonde hair. Uh, and and make them look, give them different faces. Heck, he can even draw two supermen and make them look like different people. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, and then, in fact, I think it's consecutive issues where Supergirl and the Flash die, actually, looking at it, but then the fact that Psycho Pirate, he draws an amazing Psycho Pirate in this book. The only reason I know Psycho Pirate as a character is New Teen Titans and Crisis, drawn by George Perez, but also the monitor and the anti-monitor. So classic designs, I think, there, those two characters. They both look amazing. Did he design... Is that the first time we've seen the anti-monitor? Crisis was the first time we saw the anti-monitor. The monitor appeared in New Teen Titans, where they started setting up Crisis, but was obviously still Wolfman and Perez. I think I read in one of the intros to one of the new Teen Titans books I read, Wolfman was talking about he'd created this character, the librarian, who <laughs> was keeping a record of everything, and that then evolved into the monitor. But I, I, I love the fact that for when the DC TV shows a couple of years ago did Crisis, they basically did the Perez monitor. They just built mm. that costume and put it on this guy, and he looked like he'd been straight out of the comics and it was great they couldn't really do that with the anti-monitor <laughs> Perez's anti-monitor which is the thing of beauty wasn't something they could they could recreate so effectively on their budget so they just sort of got the same actor and, and give him like zombie makeup or something what, uh, what? but I, I love that Perez could sometimes do that would draw something that you couldn't recreate and we talked we talked about with Wonder Man earlier but I think the anti-monitor is another one of those one thing I would say is that, like, when a when a good i there's no there's no good idea in comics that people aren't willing to copy and reference a hundred times. Like, um, Wolverine's claws is kind of iconic. How many characters we have we seen that have claws that are similar? You know, um, heck, Marvel even did it with um, Dark Hawk again. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Batman. Oh, Batman cape and horns. Let's let's copy that. The Hawkeye kind of eye wings thing i've never seen anybody copy the anti-monitor yeah. and honestly it is i have always every time i see the anti-monitor i am like that is the weirdest thing <laughs> like are those teeth is that is it like baleen like what is it and he's so unsettling to look at he's a really really weird face that's it. When when they came up with the idea for the anti-monitor is the evil version of the monitor. They're two two of the same guy, but two sides of the same thing. And I feel like when most people come up with that, they do what the TV shows did and just go like, well, we'll get the same guy and just make him look evil with like paler and deader or something. Perez went, nope, I'm going to draw <laughs> this crazy weird armor thing with big glowing eyes and it could be teeth, it could be rocks, who knows, but there's energy in that mouth. <laughs> I don't think you can really describe the anti-monitor. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, there's something clearly kind of compelling about him as a character because he's frequently brought back and referenced. Uh, oh, oh, God, during um, 
the the later Green Lantern stuff didn't uh, the Anti Monitor turn up in like yep. the Sinestro Corps or something like that? Yes, he did. That's true. As part of the Sinestro Corps, that was weird. And he's just so again cannot stress enough. Just so weird, like just so weird to look at. Yeah, yeah, and I think as well the death of the Flash in the book is such a small moment if you actually read Crisis because. It's it's very famous. He's sort of trying to destroy the anti monitor's like uh, p- power source cannon thing that he's going to use to wipe out all the multiverses, and he runs around them and just sort of ages to dust. But Perez does it in tiny little panels where you get Barry starting to age and sort of. There's various points in the earlier issues where Barry's just sort of popped into reality, and then it happens later on as well. So you actually see him popping. Popping into existence in front of Kid Flash Wally at mm. the time, and that is that's from a scene that hasn't happened yet in the book. And then he appears in front of the Joker and Batman, who are both like, "Wait, why? Why is the Flash here?" and disappears again. And that had happened earlier on in like issue one or two. And then, so you see it from the Flash's point of view here, where he slowly starts to age. And then, yeah, you get this one shot where he's old, and the next shot where he's basically a zombie. And then he's a skull. And then it's just a costume collapsing into dust. And it's it's so evocative. It's... And say the panels are tiny, but the impact they have is huge. And I feel like another artist would have done a big splash page of, of the Flash, like, exploding into energy or something like that. But Perez knew that that wasn't what this moment was. And I love it. It's so good. I mean, it's also become so iconic that the the death of the Flash and those and that progression of images that, like, God, how many times has that been referenced? Um, I mean, one that springs to mind is in um, the opening issue of Planetary, where yeah. you have the pulp heroes of the '30s fighting the iconic superheroes of the '60s, one of whom is very clearly a Flash analog, and in one little panel as an almost blinking you miss it moment, you have John Cassaday drawing this speedster being kind of aged to bones in a very, very, very similar manner. Like it's just become comics shorthand in a way. Yeah. Like it's it's part of the the history of, of Western comics. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've also got in Titans and in Crisis Simon. His name's just Simon, but with a P at the start, but he's got a big clear dome on his head where you can see his brain and psychic powers and for some reason that sounds stupid but it works <laughs> I honestly thought for a while that have you, have you seen The Suicide Squad yet? No not yet It's very good I would recommend it and I can't for life me remember I thought Peter Capaldi's character may have been Simon but I think he's not I think he's, he's the thinker he's, isn't he? He's the thinker yeah he's got, he's, he's got a good brain PJ that's <laughs> But yeah, so I love Crisis. I love that they built to it in New Teen Titans. And then, obviously, after Crisis, DC reboot their universe. And I'm pretty sure that the only comics that didn't sort of get new number ones at that point were the Superman and Batman ones, although they did get new series that started. Mm. Uh, So like Superman, you get The Man of Steel. That's an issue one. That's the one that retails the origin. Everything else just sort of carries on. But everyone else got a new one. And, of course, that's when Perez relaunched Wonder Woman and was the writer and not on every issue, but was the artist as well for a good long period of time. 
And for me, it's the definitive Wonder Woman. It well, really yeah, is. Yeah, because in many ways, Wonder Woman's backstory and mythology have always been pretty messy. Yes. Like, um, you know, the continuity has changed a lot. You know, um, we've talked about it that at one point, Wonder Woman was running around with the original incarnation of the League. And then that's retcon to say, no, that's actually Black Canary. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of what we considered to be classic, what classic quote unquote Wonder Woman came in after Crisis, did it? Yeah, not? yeah, definitely. That's that reboot of Wonder Woman was the reason suddenly Black Canary was a founding member of the League because Wonder Woman doesn't show up for a couple more years in in actual DC law at that point, and that was because of Perez's version and take on the character. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like, because okay, again, when I got into, you know, when I first really started appreciating kind of like DC comics, like in, in the nineties, God, I think the first time I saw Wonder Woman in action was in, um, oh God, uh, DC versus Marvel. Yeah, and apart from knowing vaguely about the character, but to me, I mean, that's still the Wonder Woman I kind of think of, the Wonder Woman we see in this series. You know, who can fly, who is very strong, that sort of thing. I think there's... I genuinely don't know if she can fly in the comics at the moment. I get, I bet she can. I think she can, yeah. I, again, I've got some of that run, and I haven't read it for a while, but I'm pretty sure she does fly in that. But yeah, he was on that... I just looked it up. He was on that book for a long time. He was the writer up in, from issue 1 to issue 62. Only penciled issues 1 to 24... But to then keep writing it till issue 62, which then obviously leads into that War of the Gods miniseries I mentioned as well, which he uh, was, I think, the writer and artist on all four issues. When, That's when a good did, run. When did John Byrne... When was John Byrne doing his... Oh, that, his... Was, that was concurrent with Morrison's JLA. Ah, yeah, that would make sense, yeah. You know, in many ways, the two... I mean, the two of them... I mean, I think of... Um, Byrne and, and Perez. I mean, obviously, you know, we 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 have a few criticisms of of, of Byrne, um, many of which are justified. Yeah. But like um, similar schools of art, in a way, like they both had a certain attention to detail. I think um, Perez's images were often a bit more complex. Yes, but I think Byrne had a similar grasp of um, anatomy and stuff. I mean, I look at something like. Um, the Claremont Byrne original run on X-Men. And I can see, I can think, I can file that in the same area in my brain as a lot of Perez's work. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, Byrne had probably his, some of his best work was when he was on Fantastic Four. And, but Perez did a good chunk of issues of Fantastic Four as well in the, the late 70s, um, sort of concurrent with his work on, his early work on Avengers. And I think comparing and contrasting Perez's Fantastic Four to Burns' Fantastic Four would be very interesting, actually, having a look at them sort of side by side and how their takes on the characters really differ from each other and, and maybe what they do the same as well. Because I agree with you. I think Burns' artwork in the 70s and eight, some of his 80s stuff, there's some very, very good stuff in there that does put me in mind in terms of the way he goes about what he does of of similar to Perez. Not quite as good, I would argue. I don't think Bernie's as good with faces as Perez, for one thing. No, but, I, pro I probably agree. 
but yeah, I think that that's definitely an interesting contrast. I actually haven't read any of the issues of Fantastic Four that Perez has done, as far as I'm aware, but I think I will need to try and find them. I don't, I, it'd be so easy for this to just evolve into going, oh, and this is cool, and this is cool, which I'm not adverse to. But um, I'm just looking at, I've got like a random page open from the finale of JLA Avengers, mm. which is I was going to say, oh, it's for panel where it's a bunch of heroes fighting a bunch of villains, but that doesn't narrow it down. Cool, thanks, John. Uh, no, it's cool, it's cool. Oh, yeah, you'll, you'll know it when you see it. Uh, and obviously, it's just yet another incredible panel, which could be on its own, the showcase of an issue entirely in its own right. But it's all the little details. Like, on the one hand, it looks incredible. On the other hand, it's the thought that's gone into every individual pairing like who's fighting who? Mm. Like oh, it's like oh, it's Superman fighting Count Nefaria. Oh and yes, I, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well that's fun. That makes sense. And then I looked above them and I'm like, oh my god, is that Captain Atom fighting X-ray from the UFOs? <laughs> I was like, that that is obscure. Yeah, and and also it's kind of weird, like because obviously when JLA Avengers came out. In 2004, Perez had left Avengers, had yes. he not? Yeah, he had. Yeah, true. So it, it was interesting seeing him return to the series after not a massive break, but also drawing characters that didn't really exist when even a few years prior. Because, like, um, in the background of this one panel, there's um, uh, Faith from JLA, who doesn't pop up until the. Um, Joe Kelly run, I think, in like the upper 60s or 70s. Oh, God, yeah, I found the panel you're talking about. Yeah, there she is. Yeah. Again, it's it's, it's always weird to see like um, Perez drawing someone else's character. Oh, oh and Zauriel, who's in like uh, the panel below. I'm glad Zauriel gets to have a little moment in there. And then, of course, a couple of pages after that, you have the amazing moment where Captain America just punches out Prometheus. <laughs> And now, for one thing, yeah. I think Perez draws an absolutely amazing Prometheus. And then I also just love seeing him get decked like that. And also now, in the panel above, obviously, Perez drawing the best Superman. Absolutely. And I, just, uh, I mean, just the, the, you know, the world's colliding element of this, like to be such a fan of JLA, this particular run. Hi, everyone. This is our podcast. <laughs> uh, to obviously personally love Prometheus. And then, like, oh, hey, everyone, here's, here's your favourite villain from one of your two favourite series fighting the main hero from your other favourite series? Like, it's blinking, you miss it, but it's very cool. And the fact that Cap's got his energy shield in that panel as well. Because, oh, God, yeah. Because Perez, I think, I think it was his own personal mission. He wanted to get every single costume for every single character into the book. Um, the... The Hero Initiative version has a rundown of it, sort of like a commentary section at the back where it runs down costumes, and the characters who have the most different costume changes in it are Iron Man and the Wasp. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, God, I mean, if you want to talk about... <laughs> again, I don't want to be too weird about it, but like, I always very much liked uh, George Perez's take on the Wasp. Yeah. I think Teenage Me was like, she's very cute. <laughs> I <laughs> Yeah, but one of the things I love about this book as well is it's per not just Perez drawing the Avengers again, but drawing Wonder Woman again. 
and it's such a good Wonder Woman. He just he's just so good at it. And also, why is he so comfortable drawing curly hair? Again, yeah. I'm not an artist, but I, I I think I know that drawing hair is hard. Drawing curly hair has to be a bloody nightmare. But like, he Wanda has legitimate, believable hair. Wonder Woman has actual believable hair. Like, yeah, it's kind of up there with like his faces. He draws a good beard. He draws a good hairstyle. He's very good at making people look like distinct human beings. Yeah, but they're not... Again, he's not always just drawing the same hair. Like, Wanda and Diana's hair, even though they're both very realistic, are very different. If you get to a sequence where he's drawing Miss um, Marvel, Carol Danvers, she has straight long hair, and but again, feels very natural and is very different. And mm. yeah, I mm. think he just had a real understanding of anatomy and, and how the human body works and looks, didn't he? Well, exactly. And I, I was, you know, going back to something we said earlier, I think you could take any panel of, say, Scarlet Witch and any panel of Wonder Woman, you could Photoshop out the hair and you could still know who they are. Yeah. Because, again, it's, you know, comics, you've got to draw, like, you know, a hundred amazing pictures a month to make, like, (laughs) and that's, you know, minimum to make, like, a comic. So, like, um, yeah, we people rely on shorthand. It's not a crime, but, you know... Fall back yeah. on the costume, fall back on the hairstyle. So the cover um, of this collection is the uh, like the first promo image they put out before they'd even started the book. So some of the characters on it aren't as they would appear in JLA Avengers. Kyle's is in his best costume, the black and white one. Um, Hank Pym is wearing like the the dark blue with grey braces costume he had. Oh, interesting. At the time, but. I'm looking, and it's it's just that promo image where they're all sort of stood there staring out at you. And I am looking at the faces, and they are all different. He doesn't phone it in at all. Kyle looks very young, has a slightly rounder face. Wally's face is 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 a bit longer. You know, Cap's Cap and Superman both have a, a bit of a square jaw, but Cap's head is maybe slightly narrower. His build is slightly narrower than than Superman's, and. Hawkeye's got slightly fuller lips than Captain America. Yeah, it, it's it's an impressive, impressive picture, and it's just a bunch of people stood there. My my one regret is that Kyle was not in his best costume for most of this story. Yeah, I think Kyle. I, I read somewhere that when George started drawing the series, he was drawing Kyle in that costume. And then during the making of it, Kyle's costume changed in Green Lantern and he had to go back and change it in all the panels he'd already drawn. And that was when George went, if anything else changes, I'm not updating it in this book. This is just when this book is set. And that's why then you do get characters from the future who appear. There's a panel of Aquaman where he's got his water hand and he's back in the short hair and everything. Um, And yeah, I think there is a panel in issue four where Kyle is in the best costume, is in the the very brief costume. Very brief, sadly. Yeah, but there's even a, a panel where Hal Jordan is parallax as well. So. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> it is... It's a shame we don't give out... Obviously, there's industry awards. It's a shame we don't give out medals. Mm. Because, like... You could have just quit after this, to be honest. Or you probably could, probably could have just quit after Crisis on Infinite Earths and everyone would have still regarded him as one of the titans of the industry. Yeah, yeah. 
We are going to, at some point during the course of the normal episodes of the podcast, get to JLA Avengers. Those are going to be long episodes. We're going to have a lot to talk about, just to warn people in advance now. Mm. Well, at this point, PJ, like, you know, lest it does just evolve into us listing off cool things. Um, is there anything, you know, are there any highlights we haven't touched upon, do you think? I mean, obviously, we could talk for hours about highlights of his career. Yes, yeah, I do just want to very briefly mention uh, one other book. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, but it's worth tracking down. They they relaunched The Brave and the Bold in mm. the late 2000s as a Batman team-up book. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying it was written by Mark Wade and drawn... It was George Perez drew it. Yes, correct. Brilliant book, brilliant book. I recommend checking it out. Oh, God, that would be a good pairing. Yeah, I can see that working really well. Yeah. Um Yeah, I I feel like I I feel I need to go and track down these kind of pivotal moments. Which, you know, it's funny, you think of like, oh, they're pivotal moments in Perez's career. More often than not, they're also kind of pivotal moments just in superhero comics in general. Like he's he's just kind of been there at every big moment. Hmm. Yeah, I am. Gr- I am grateful to have experienced and loved the Avengers. You know, yes. um, I wouldn't have loved. I, I mean, I wouldn't know and love those characters today if not for that series. Um, uh, yeah, same. It's a really good series. You know? Same, and it's I well- think it's it's always going to be. You know, I, I I essentially consider JLA Avengers as part of Busek and Perez's Avengers, mm. and so that's my favorite thing that he did was that that run on Avengers and JLA Avengers, I think, for personally. You know, I, I love everything I've got that he's done, but that that for me is is the high point. Yeah. No, I I, I couldn't have said it better. Like it it kind of it it, it was one of the reasons I, I kind of fell in love with comics, really. Yeah. Like um it it was a very different vibe to JLA. It was doing very different things as a book. But I I loved it just as much and just in different ways really and yeah. um yeah I'm I'm just very very thankful to have enjoyed it and I'm glad I can go back and can can continue to enjoy it. Yeah, same. Very much so. And I think um you know thank you George for shaping my life in a small way. I agree. Yeah, I I couldn't have said it better. 